Recently, we have been involved in a series of lessons on Sunday morning, thinking about the time of year when holiday baskets are distributed and people enjoy the goodies that are in those baskets. We have asked the question, not what is in your wallet or not what's in your safe, but what's in your basket. That is, what is in your basket spiritually based upon the passage we're looking at in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And of course, that's the passage where Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. We've already seen love and joy in the first two lessons in this series, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. It is so vitally important that we do fill our spiritual fruit basket, so to speak, with this spiritual fruit. Beginning with love, we talked about the fact that love is such a vital part a foundational characteristic, really, of our lives as Christians. And we looked at the great chapter on love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The greatest of these is love, that chapter concludes with those words. The greatest of these is love. Abides faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. Love should permeate our lives and should guide all of our actions. What grows out of love naturally should be joy. But our joy is directly tied to our relationship to Jesus. And the joy that we experience should be a joy that Jesus himself had. And we talked about that. That joy of knowing, that joy of showing and, and uh, going and growing as we looked at that lesson. But today we look at the third characteristic. And it is a vitally important one as well. That characteristic, that fruit that needs to be in our spiritual fruit basket is peace. But what kind of peace is it? In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus defines the peace that we are to have as a part of the fruit of the Spirit. There he said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so in this statement to his apostles in the context of those chapters where he was letting them know that he was going to go away, but that he was going to send another comforter to guide them into all truth, they would have peace despite the fact that he would leave them. And it's the same kind of peace that we must have and can have as children of God Today. He makes a distinction between his peace that he was to leave them and ultimately the peace that we can also have and the peace that the world gives. The peace that the world gives, the peace for which the world craves is, is a peace that means a cessation of hostility and certainly that is worthwhile. That is something about which we should be concerned. It is something for which we should pray. That cessation of, of hostility. But that is not the peace that Jesus gives. Not all cessation from hostility, though certainly if every individual indeed determined to fill his fruit basket spiritually, so to speak, with the fruit of the Spirit, we would have that cessation of hostility, wouldn't we? 
because all would be following Christ. But we know that realistically, not all follow Christ. In fact, realistically, not even the majority follow Christ. Not even the majority seek to imbibe the characteristics that Jesus himself so beautifully and perfectly demonstrated and the characteristics that he, through the Holy Spirit, has, through his word, revealed to us today. But let's think about this peace, the peace of Jesus. As we talked about the joy of Jesus being a joy of knowing where we are and who we are and, and uh, showing that joy and growing in that joy and going in that joy, as we think of going home to the Father ultimately, let's think about the peace of Jesus. Where should it begin? If we are to have the peace of Jesus, the, the peace that Jesus says, I give to you, not as the world gives, give I unto you, but my peace. What kind of peace is that? It is, first of all, peace with God. And that's where it has to begin. Unless you have peace with God, everything else falls apart. There can be no real true peace. There can be no peace that surpasses all understanding that Paul writes about in the Philippian letter unless there is peace with God. How is that peace achieved? In Romans 5, 1 and 2, Tommy brought this passage out in our discussion in Bible class this morning. Paul writes, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the peace of Jesus that brings us peace with God, Paul says, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice. That gets us back to joy, doesn't it? And rejoice in the hope of the glory of of God, in the hope of one day being in that glorious scene with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the faithful of all the ages in that glorious state when life is no more. How can we anticipate? How can we have that hope? We can only have that hope if we've made peace with God. And Paul tells us it's done by faith. But as we discussed in our Bible class this morning, it's not faith alone by which we have peace with God. It cannot be grace alone because Paul in this passage tells us that faith gives us access into his grace, which tells us not all are automatically in the grace of God. Simply because God sent his only begotten son to die on Calvary does not mean that that grace that was manifested at Calvary will save mankind, whether mankind responds to that grace or not. Obviously, this passage and so many others will tell us that our response to that grace in order to have access into that grace is by faith. But what kind of faith is it? It is obedient faith. Look at another passage in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, where the same writer, the Apostle Paul, says, For he himself is our peace. There it is. Christ is our peace. How has he accomplished that? He's talking about peace with God now. Who has made both? Who are the both? Jew and Gentile. All mankind. Both Jew and Gentile. Both have been made what? Have been made one. Have been brought together. And he has broken down the middle wall of separation. 
How so? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. What is that enmity, Paul? The law of commandments, the old law, the law of Moses, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So as to do what, Paul? So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He brought them together, but how? In Christ. Notice the latter part of the statement. And that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God. Reconciliation to God brings peace with God. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body. How? Through the cross. Thereby putting to death the enmity. And so we have peace with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Through the cross. But notice where that peace is located. In one body. In one body. We've talked about it before. What is that one body? It is the church. The body of Christ into which all mankind, Jew and Gentile, must be reconciled to God in that one body through the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus shed his blood that purchased that one body, didn't he? He purchased the church with his blood that he shed on Calvary. Remember what Paul admonished the Ephesian elders in Acts 20? Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. To shepherd, oversee the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And that body is the church, purchased at the cross with the blood of Christ. And in that one body, and only in that one body, can we have peace with God. There can be no peace with God outside the body. The body being the church. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, just as there is one body in that passage in Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 4. He put all things under His, Christ's feet, and gave Him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Is there any doubt then when we come to Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, that Paul is talking about another body other than the one body being the church that he's already written about in Ephesians 1? that he will then write about again in Ephesians 4, that he will again write about again in Ephesians 5, 23, when he says, For as the husband is the head of the wife, Christ also is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body, the Savior of the church. And so peace with God cannot be obtained outside the church. And it's not just the church of man's choosing, it's the church for which Jesus shed his precious blood. Where is that church described? Here. Where is that church imitated? Here. Here at White Oak and in so many other places across the globe today. How? By simply following the pattern for the church set forth in the New Testament. The one body exists today. The one body being the church. And in that one body, the church, we can have a peace with God. The only way to have that peace with God is through that reconciliation through the cross in the church to which the Lord adds the obedient 
upon their belief that leads them to repent of their sins, confess Jesus as the Christ, and then to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. You rise from that watery grave of baptism, cleansed by his blood, in perfect peace. Peace with God. And that's the only way to have it. And that's the peace that you must have. But there's an outgrowth of that peace with God that we need to appreciate as well. And that is peace with others. The Bible enjoins upon us an attitude that encourages and engenders peace with one another. Not turmoil, not strife, not division, unnecessary division, but peace. And the Hebrews writer in Hebrews 12, 14, admonishes us to pursue peace. Chase after it. Go after peace. Pursue it. Don't let peace come to you, in other words. You go after it. In other words, we are to be active. We're to be active as brothers and sisters in Christ in pursuing peace, obviously with one another, but with all people. I'm to strive, I'm to pursue peace with all my fellow man, and so are you. And especially within the body of Christ, that should be the easiest pursuit of all. And yet, tragically, it's not always the case. Not at all. But it should be. And it will be when I fully understand and appreciate that because of my peace with God, there's a responsibility that I have to pursue it with everyone else. And holiness, sanctification, in other words, being set apart, leading holy lives. And how important is this? Well, here's how important it is. The writer says, without which no one will see the Lord. And so it's not just a question of whether or not I think holiness and pursuit of peace are two things I need to be concerned about, but maybe not all that crucial. Without which no one will see the Lord. Now, we know what the writer means by see the Lord here. He means see the Lord in the sense of being approved by the Lord and spending all eternity, being all, in all eternity with the Lord in his approval. Every single one of us here is going to see the Lord in one sense, aren't we? Every single one of us will stand before God in Christ in judgment. But what the writer here obviously means is unless you see him, when you see him, and unless you see him as one who has pursued peace and one who's living a holy life, not sinless, but blameless because you're following the will of God, you will not see him in the sense of being approved by him. And so I'm to pursue peace with all people. This is one passage that tells me that. But uh, Romans 12, 18, the Apostle Paul there says, If it be possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If it be possible, and here's a key phrase, as much as depends on you. In other words, if you don't have peace with your fellow man, make sure that it's your fellow man who is disrupting the process and not you. 
and that you're not the one who's disrupting the peace process. But now having said that, we need to add this caveat. The Bible makes it clear that the peace we're to pursue is not peace at any price. It is not peace at any price. And I know that from what the Lord said in the passage we have before us. Matthew 10, 34 through 36. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. In other words, Jesus says, yes, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. But here he says, don't think that I came to bring bring peace in another sense. In other words, what he's saying is the peace that I am bringing, the peace that I leave with you may, because of the reaction of others to you, because you have that peace, their reaction may be a hostile reaction and it may create strife because of their reaction to your following my will. How should we react to that? Jesus tells us, you cannot, you cannot sacrifice your conviction. You cannot give up Christ in order to keep peace with your mother? Yes. Your father? Your daughter? Your, your family? In other words, doesn't my family take precedence over anything and anyone? Jesus says, no. No one takes precedence over me, Jesus said. And so he says, please, as you pursue the peace that I leave with you, please don't allow your priorities to be misplaced to the extent that you sacrifice my peace in order to keep peace even in your own family. You can't do that and be pleasing to me. Obviously, it doesn't mean you need to be ugly to those who are in your family. Just the opposite. Kind and loving, but firm in your conviction that you will not give up the peace that surpasses understanding in order to please someone who is opposing that conviction and opposing your love and stand for Christ. And so, peace with God, absolutely essential. Peace with others, yes, we should pursue it, but not peace at any price. That gets us back to Romans twelve eighteen. As much as depends on you, but others may oppose you. And when they do, it cannot become the case, Jesus says here, that blood is thicker than water, as the expression goes. A better expression in this case would be what? To capitulate to family or to anyone to keep peace at any price and sacrifice the peace that Jesus has given would be in effect to say blood is thicker than the blood. Blood is not thicker than the blood. The blood of Christ has to take precedence over everything and everyone as we are kind and loving but as we nonetheless refuse to sacrifice 
the peace that Christ has given to keep the peace otherwise. But also, the peace of Jesus is peace with yourself. Peace with God, peace with others, but finally, peace with yourself. And we've alluded to the passage in Philippians where Paul writes, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God that what? Surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that those in the world cannot understand. They don't understand the kind of peace that you exhibit in your life, or hopefully that you exhibit if you're a faithful child of God. You don't live like they do. You don't think like they do. You don't worry like they do. It surpasses all understanding. And it guards your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's peace with yourself. To get the full context, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus, through Christ Jesus. And then in verses 8 and 9, Paul continues, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and here it is again, and the God of peace, the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God that surpasses understanding comes from the God of peace. And it comes to those who have made peace with God, who are pursuing peace with others, and who therefore are at peace with themselves. In two of his letters near the close of those epistles, Paul closed with words that are worthy of closing this lesson. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, in every way. The Lord be with you all. He wrote that in the Second Thessalonian letter. He also wrote it in a letter in which he had obviously admonished and taught them to deal with the error that some had embraced. In other words, Paul wasn't saying, I want you to have peace at, at any price. I want you to have peace based upon your obedience to the will of God. And what about the second Corinthian letter? Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. But the same writer who wishes for them this kind of situation wrote to them in the first epistle and rebuked them time and again for issues that existed there, which in effect was saying, if you want the peace of God and peace with God and even peace with one another, 
It has to be a peace based upon your compliance with the will of God. And that's the basis upon which we must have the peace of God here at White Oak. And that is based upon following the commandments of the Lord. Do you have that peace that surpasses all understanding this morning? Does it guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus because you are in Christ Jesus? If you're not in Christ Jesus, you cannot have that peace with God because only in Christ is that peace achieved, as we have already noted. He has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation. He has reconciled Jew and Gentile, all mankind, to God in one body, the church, through the cross, his death on the cross, and the terms that he set forth there, by which you may enter the body of Christ, the church, being added thereto by the Lord himself, as you're cleansed by the blood that was shed on Calvary so long ago. That blood can only be reached in a watery burial. It's not the water that will give you peace. It's the blood. But the blood is in the water. That's how God designed it. But it's not just that burial in water where the blood is reached. It must be preceded, that burial must be, by a strong belief that Jesus is the Christ, a willingness to repent of your sins, that is, turn your back upon your sins and determine to change your life, a sweet confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Romans 10.10, the repentance, Acts 2.38, repent, and then the baptism. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, Jesus said so clearly, so simply. Because in that burial and baptism, the blood is reached, cleansing you from sin and allowing you to rise, to walk in newness of life, a life of peace. A life that is a life of peace no matter what else happens in this world. No matter how much turmoil, how much conflict there is in this world. And we should pray that all that would cease, certainly. But whether it does or doesn't, you can still have the peace that surpasses all understanding and rise to walk in a new life of peace, pursuing peace with all people and having the peace for yourself that guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. If you've known that peace but you've turned your back upon that peace and no longer have it because you've wandered from the commandments of the Lord that you once cherished and obeyed and have sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the Lord's church, come home to the blood that was shed initially for you that you once treasured and that you once contacted when you obeyed the gospel. But if you need to come home to that blood, we'll pray with you and for you to the God of love, the God of peace, who waits to give you the peace that he once gave you and wants you to have it again as we stand to sing.